are we ready? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's a trick to find out if you were muted. Okay. Five, four, three, two, one. Hi, I'm Jay Familietti. Welcome to season two of Let's Talk About Water. This is a podcast about the future of water and why you should care. It's coming to you from the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon. Today, we're looking at the impact of COVID-19 and how we manage the planet's water supply from here on in. We now know that the risk of waterborne transmission of COVID is not very high, but there are many other ways in which COVID impacts water and vice versa. Today, we're going to explore the way the pandemic has affected water systems and water access in ways that we couldn't have imagined just a few months ago. Among today's stories, we will explore how scientists are rolling up their sleeves and getting their hands dirty, chasing COVID-19 and municipal sewage, how one of this continent's oldest and most vulnerable groups is experiencing additional and severe water stress caused by the pandemic, and how one indigenous man was moved by a water tragedy more than a decade ago to make a difference to people worried about the crisis affecting the world today. But first, following our successful launch last year, we had plans for a bigger, better season two, slickly produced at our state-of-the-art university studios. But the impact of COVID-19 means the end of weekly visits for me to an actual recording studio the one where a friendly producer hanging on my every word handed me a cup of coffee before seating me in front of a $5,000 microphone. Well, we've had to adapt. So here I am in my office in front of a much less expensive microphone sitting at the middle of my desk. But you know what? COVID won't affect the great storytelling one little bit over the next dozen weeks or so of this new season of Let's Talk About Water even if I have to pull out my guitar and do some of the musical accompaniment myself. I call this one the COVID-19 blues. We begin season two of Let's Talk About Water with a colleague of mine. Dr. Marcus Brinkman is a professor of exposure and risk assessment modeling at the University of Saskatchewan and a researcher here at the Global Institute for Water Security and in our Center for Toxicology. And Marcus has had a front row seat along with fellow water researchers around the world watching in real time as COVID entered our lives back in the winter. Welcome to the program, Marcus. Thank you so much, Jay. Thanks for having me. Um, it's, a, it's a real pleasure. Now, Marcus, when the world started getting its head around how serious COVID-19 was back in January and February. What were the chief concerns of water experts like yourself? You know, the first thing we really started thinking about was uh, whether or not uh, changes in use patterns of different chemicals, uh, for me as a toxicologist by training, that was really interesting, uh, would change. So we started getting in contact with wastewater treatment plant operators, et cetera, et cetera, and talk about these things. And then in the process of that, uh, they really got interested in 
potential transmission risks of COVID through wastewater. So this is kind of how we started uh, talking to operators and the wastewater industry around uh, the province. That's really interesting. Was there ever a point in time when people thought about drinking water, that it might be transmitted through drinking water supplies? Yes, I think uh, those questions have been asked. I think in terms of transmission risks through water, uh, most of the studies we've seen recently uh, show that they are relatively minor, especially since many of the wastewater treatment plants also have uh, pretty sophisticated sanitization stages uh, to clean the water uh, so that no bacteria and other pathogens might leave the plants. So that's not something that we expect to change, right? Like, I mean, we understand now that it's not really waterborne and as long as we keep up to our high standards of water treatment, we will be okay, right? Uh, it would seem so. Uh, I think there is a couple uh, gaps in our current understanding. And, uh, you know, most of our knowledge that we have is from conventional wastewater treatment plants, uh, like the very sophisticated ones with activated sludge stages, etc. cetera. Uh, but many of the wastewater treatment plants in Canada and across the United States of America are actually lagoon-based, so relatively simple plants where the wastewater enters um, so-called constructed wetlands for treatment. And uh, to my knowledge, none of those have been studied yet. So there's all sorts of transmission risks you could think of uh, to small mammals like muskrats and beaver inhabiting those um, lagoons. But yeah, as I said, I think we, we are kind of blind on one eye at this point. Yeah, so that's pretty interesting. I didn't really realize that. So then, you know, considering that this was a, a wildlife uh, generated virus, um, do you think that there's a chance? So, you know, we're off in a lagoon and the Canadian beaver are, are you know, paddling around and enjoying themselves, but they're pretty close to us here, especially here in Saskatoon. So do you think that there's a, uh, a risk of us you know, being infected by COVID carrying beavers? Yes, I think the scenario seems realistic, but we're really lacking research dedicated uh, to this particular question. So I think uh, future studies um, would hopefully show these links um, or exclude them for the better. But yeah, not being an epidemiologist myself, I'm, I'm not sure how to go about those sorts of studies. I think, uh, yeah, we, we look at other experts to solve those problems. So now I'm concerned, Marcus, because I, I walk along the river several times a day with my dog and, I, you know, I see all the beaver activity, so I know they're out there. Um, and, I, you know, I admire the work that they do greatly, but, but now I think I'm just afraid. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we'll keep an eye on the beaver. I think many of us are now starting to understand that COVID is really um, much more of an airborne thing than a waterborne thing. And that's when your work pretty much went straight into the toilet, right? No pun intended. Please <laughs> tell us, what, what is that all about? So in a way, uh, you know, when humans are infected with uh, SARS-CoV-2 or they have COVID, they uh, would not only have, uh, be having the virus particles on their respiratory surfaces like their lungs and their noses where uh, health professionals typically take nose swabs to sample for COVID, but they would also shed the virus through their feces. Um, and this is really where the, the toilet and the sewer system comes in, because everything we flush down our toilets will end up somewhere in a wastewater treatment plant. And this is where, for example, in Saskatoon, all the water from all the residents uh, would mix. And that is a potential 
site where you can sample and test for COVID, which seems surprising, but it works pretty well. It might take a couple of days until you find measurable levels of um, the virus in feces, but uh, that might still be earlier than any um, symptoms that people might show. And now the, the really big advantage, in my opinion, is that even asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic um, patients would already shed virus through their feces. So you might have a little bit of a time uh, advantage there before you could actually uh, see those people at the testing centers. So that's pretty incredible, right? Because then this can be used as a diagnostic. Exactly. Your work, you know, you're not the only person that's doing this, right? I mean, my understanding is that many people are tracking, uh, looking at sewage as an indicator of uh, outbreaks or maybe warding off outbreaks. Where does your work fit in with some of the other work that's being done uh, across uh, North America and all around the world? Yeah, so I'm part of a larger group of researchers at the University of Saskatchewan, uh, both in the Toxicology Center as well as in the College of Engineering. Uh, and we all work together on, on trying to perfect the methods for detection of traces of SARS-CoV-2 in wastewater, uh, and then also trying to work with the engineers on the wastewater treatment side. Um, now that's at the University of Saskatchewan, but uh, we are part of a bigger group, uh, the so-called Coalition of the Canadian Water Network, where uh, really a group of people from all across Canada come together to help and standardize those methods to make sure that we use methods that, uh, you know, if we have a negative find in a wastewater treatment plant, that we actually don't have any virus in there. You know, uh, trying to be as uh, conservative as possible and making sure that the quality is controlled. Are we getting a different picture from studying sewage? So does studying, to, to be blunt, millions of gallons of undifferentiated human poop does that give us a different picture of the COVID crisis than the results of the zillions of individual lab tests? So is it as good as a, uh, a foot-long Q-tip rammed up my nose? Yeah, you're totally right. So uh, what it is really is a population-wide screening for um, potential COVID cases. So you don't get those people sign up for individual tests um, that show symptoms and have to get tested potentially to go back to work and things like that. But you look at the entire population at the same time. It is really, really tricky to get back from the results we read in our sewage samples to a number of cases in the population. Doing that requires a lot of knowledge about the system. Uh, it's possible, but it's, it's really tricky. Um, I think where the real power of this lies is to see changes. So for example, this week in Saskatchewan and many other provinces across Canada, the kids go back to school. And there has been a lot of anxiety about uh, potential case numbers rising and surging actually um, as, a, as a result of that. Oftentimes kids do not show symptoms and they don't show the same symptoms as adults do. So um, I think there's a real chance if you detect an increase in the traces of COVID in wastewater that you could say, okay, I think we, we have some community transmission going on here. Are any decision makers taking advantage of this here or uh, in other cities around the world? 
So uh, we are working directly with the uh, operators of the wastewater treatment plant in Saskatoon. So the city is really interested in it. The Saskatchewan Health Authority is aware of our research and they are really interested in it. But I think um, since it's still really early days in the process of getting the methods right, they are not entirely sure how to use this information just yet. We will certainly share our information with everyone interested and uh, hope that they can use it in decision making. But at this point, not many decision makers or uh, authorities have used this information yet. Thanks so much for joining us today, Marcus. Uh, it's been great to, to chat with you. Thank you, Jay, for having me. Marcus Brinkman is a professor of exposure and risk assessment modeling at the University of Saskatchewan and a researcher here at the Global Institute for Water Security and the Center for Toxicology. And he and his team are fighting back against COVID-19 by studying believe it or not, our sewage. And we are flushed with pride about the success of his work. Thanks, Marcus. Thank you. We turn now from someone dealing with COVID-19 crisis by looking at water downstream from us, that is by studying our sewage, to someone who is concerned with getting good clean upstream water to folks living in one of the driest places on earth. Emma Robbins grew up in the Navajo Nation in the desert country of the great American Southwest. It is an understatement to say that getting access to good water has never been easy in that part of the world. But Robbins, director of the Navajo Water Project, says COVID-19 has made that daily task a lot more difficult for lots of people in her community. I reached her in Tuba City in the Navajo Nation in Arizona. Welcome to the program, Emma. Thank you for having me. I'm honored to be here. We are honored to have you. You know, there's a stark contrast, of course, between the Southwest and say the rest of the United States, but uh, also what's happening on the reservations compared to the rest of the country. So for many Navajo people, it's not like it is for me when I lived in California or where I live right now in Saskatchewan. I can just turn on a tap and, and pretty much always expect uh, safe water is going to come out of that tap. What kind of things do many of the folks where you live have to do to get access to good water? So, you know, exactly like you're saying, there are 30% of Navajos on the Navajo Nation who don't have that luxury of turning on the tap and who don't have that luxury of having access even to safe water, whether that comes through a sink in their house or if they're hauling water from a source. And it's a huge issue because, you know, everybody needs water to survive. When you think about what you do in the morning, you get up, you take your medicine, you take a shower, you make coffee, you water to your plants, your dogs and everything. And it's a big issue, especially during COVID, because, you know, we're told constantly that you need to wash your hands and stay at home. But when you don't have running water, that's not a possibility. So tell me uh, a little bit, if you don't mind, about the Navajo Water Project. The Navajo Water Project was started about five years ago, and it started when our CEO and founder of Dig Deep Water, the Navajo Water Project is under the umbrella of the human rights organization Dig Deep Water. And he came across a nonprofit 
in New Mexico that was doing water delivery routes. And so this water delivery route started because so many people in their area did not have running water. And this was actually started by a school because they were seeing that their student population was missing classes often, and they were able to link that to the fact that people didn't have running water in their homes. And so we teamed up with them. I came on very shortly afterwards, four and a half years ago. And what we started doing was installing what we call home water systems. And these are off-grid systems for families who don't have piped water, who don't have access to a safe water source. And these are comprised of an underground tank, there's some plumbing, a pump that brings it in, a water heater, a sink. And obviously you need power to um, electrify the pump. And so we very quickly saw that not only do people not have running water, but they don't have electricity. You know, most of my family growing up did not have electricity or running water. I personally was very fortunate to have those two luxuries. And so we had to design a second system which implemented solar elements so that the pump could be powered. To date, we've done about 300 of these home water systems. We've since branched out from that first location in New Mexico to all three states across the Navajo Nation. Obviously, we're a sovereign nation. It's huge. If we were a state in the US, we'd be the 10th largest. And so it takes a lot more than just going throwing in a tank and making sure that it's filled up by a water delivery route, we have to make sure that we're identifying a safe water source as well. You know, this area has a lot of abandoned uranium mines. A lot of the groundwater has arsenic and uranium in it. And so we need to make sure that not only are these sources safe, but that they're going to be long term. With climate change, we're seeing that a lot of wells are drying up and that's something that we simply can't have. In addition to these home water systems, we also assist families who might have piped wider, but aren't able to afford expensive fixes. And it's something that, you know, the running water element is great, but what we're moving into now post COVID is installing septic and bathroom additions. Emma, you are, uh, you're clearly doing God's work. I mean, this is just, just amazing what you're, what you're talking about, but I'm curious how, COVID has impacted your mission of bringing those home water systems to, to more and more people? It's been a pause. Uh, obviously, everything has shifted for everybody, but for us, we had to halt working in families' homes. You know, obviously, we are installing this plumbing, we're installing sinks, and we're in close contact with community members. We don't want to put them at risk, and we don't want to put our staff at risk. So. Since March, we have shifted to continuing to get people safe drinking water. When the pandemic first hit, I'm sure many of you know that the Navajo Nation was the hardest hit in the US there for a while. We had the highest infection rate per capita. Very unfortunately, we've lost over 500 community members here on the reservation, many of which are elders. And so it's really up to us to make sure that we're protecting our community either staying out of their homes or bringing them water because, you know, when we lose our elders, we lose our culture, we lose our language, we lose everything. We lose everything that we fought for hundreds of years to keep alive. And so when things got really bad in the spring and summer, we had a collaboration where we received 262,000 gallons of bottled water. Um, and we worked with Nestle and this was definitely just an emergency response that had to happen ASAP. We had to transport water safely to COVID positive patients, to people who were high risk, to our elders, single parents, 
um, folks who are non-ambulatory or wheelchair bound, and people who just live super off grid, like the communities that we were serving prior. Um, and it got to the point where, you know, that was a really great quick fix, but it's not a long-term solution. Obviously, bottled water creates more waste. It's also, you know, it lasts for a couple weeks or days, but we wanted to find a middle ground from this really great donation where it was sort of a stepping stone between these bottled water and between our full-on home water systems. Uh, our full-on home water systems are 1,200 gallons. And so, you know, it's required that these big tanks go underground because we're at such high elevations here. It's the desert, it's dry, but temperatures do drop at night. So what we came up with was we started dropping, um, and when I say dropping, I mean placing 275-gallon system uh, storage tanks at homes. And these are above ground and you know, we elevate them so they're safe from contamination. We leave families with buckets and soap, and we are committed to filling these up every two to four weeks, depending on how many people are in homes. So, so far we've done about 300 of these. We will have done 540 at the end of the year. And this has been sort of a silver lining because we were working in three different areas on the Navajo Nation, and now we're working in like 10 different areas. And so, again, getting back to that idea of building relationships and, you know, a large part of my job is to make sure that we're collaborating with communities, that it's not consentful, but it's collaborative. Um, you know, I think a lot of times people think, well, you're from the reservation, so you must know everyone and you must know how it works. Again, we're a huge sovereign nation where one of our project sites are, and where I'm from, it's four hours. It's a, it's a huge, huge, huge difference in culture, language, a million other things. And so the silver lining has been that we're starting to work with other communities. And so when the pandemic lifts, hopefully we'll have these long-term projects that we did before. But it's, it's definitely been a huge shift. I'm hoping that in January, we'll be able to begin home water system installations. But right now, the top two priorities are keeping people safe while still getting them drinking water. Emma, you are really, um, you know, a, sh a shining light in these in these dark uh, COVID times, in these dark times of climate change and drought in the Southwest and the fires that are happening across uh, California and the West. Uh, Emma Robbins is director of the Navajo Water Project. She spoke to me from Tuba City on the Navajo Nation. Uh, thanks very much for being on the program. Thank you. It's been really great. <laughs> An indigenous man in the Canadian province of British Columbia is harnessing technology to help manage water better. And Trevor Andrew says that since the start of the pandemic, He's never been busier serving people who want to buy his digital product. Andrew has developed an app called Book, which works on any phone or tablet. It helps treatment plant operators improve water quality monitoring and control. Trevor Andrew is a member of the Shushwap First Nation and speaks to us from his office near Kamloops. Welcome to the program, Trevor. For having me, I truly appreciate it. It's it's really our, our pleasure. And so this this um, uh, app, the Selkway book, sounds uh, uh, pretty important. 
Um, where did you get the idea for it? Well, it came up when um, Walkerton got hit in the year 2000. And uh, when the seven people died in Ontario, I was quite devastated. I had a, I have a, at the time she was four years old. And I believe the young girl that died was around roughly around the same age. And it hit me hard that from a glass of water that uh, uh, people in Canada could be affected by water. Well, so that uh, that's, um, I, I appreciate that, that inspiration, how it's um, uh, motivated you to, to act, to develop this app. Can you, can you tell us what it does? What it does, it allows the consumer or the end user into my world. So they can see what's going on with the water quality on a daily basis, so that they can have confidence that the uh, that the person that's managing the natural resource and the end result is in their best interest. So it brings everyone together from uh, networking and communicating, networking to the experts that are out there that need to look at the water quality issues in your community, and the communications to the client. Um, how long did it take you to develop? Uh, about 13 years. Oh, that's a long time. Um, yes. But I, it sounds like it's been well worth it. And I understand that it's become much more popular during the, the pandemic. Why, why is that? Uh, I, I believe, um, like, like when in Canada, innovation and technology is really slow. And we're not like the United States. We're not like the European countries. But when when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, um, people started to use different ways of communicating with technology and innovation. They embraced. They had to. They had to use it. And that was the same with my program. When when they saw the the platform, when the COVID gave the platform to innovation and technology, a lot of people. We're starting to clue into the how important it is to have innovation and technology entwined with your daily life, whether it's the COVID or not the COVID. Yeah, so I understand. You know, I understand the impact of uh, change and shift to different technologies, like we're doing right now, and everyone is doing, you know, Zoom and Microsoft Teams and. Uh, and so on. And so it sounds like uh, you were ready, you know, almost pandemic ready, given the way things have, have gone, not intentionally, of course, but uh, that, uh, you know, your your app was uh, right place, right time, so to speak. Yeah, oh, absolutely. Uh, like being a water operator, like, like you have a huge responsibility of communicating to um to your, you know, your directors and your chief and council or the political board, whoever you answer to. And it's made my job now a lot more simpler to get the message out that that's the last thing during the COVID you should worry about is your water quality. You know, I live in in Saskatoon and, you know, I worry when there's work done and we get the, you know, tags, uh, the boil water advisories. I always uh, worry about it, and and your you know, is pretty interesting. What you said, I mean, uh, about the the slowness to uh, adopt the new technology. I mean, the way we find out is some someone from um, uh, you know the water district walks around and hangs a tag on our door, right? 
telling us that it's you know bad and we need to boil water for several days. And then they walk around with a green tag, you know, when it's when it's good. And when you think about it, I mean, we could at least be doing email. Program by program, communicate to the client with texting or email. Yeah, uh, I understand now why it's become so popular. So, so what kind of clients are you attracting? I just got an email from our Australia. They want uh, they want to talk to me and how I can help them uh, manage the the water crisis that's going over there right now with their with their country. It's quite devastating to see what's happening in Australia with that Darling River and to see the impact that it's had on uh, all the cultures over there is absolutely uh, devastating. And I'm hoping uh, with the innovation and technology that I've created, it can help them uh, better manage their natural resources over there. Because I can, like from here in Canada, I can program... I can program them from here without any without flying over there. It saves it saves them money, right? Well, these days especially too. I mean, it's a it's an excellent point that you know you don't have to fly over there these days. We don't want to be flying over there, and it, and it has a lot of implications for the future if and when things get back to you know quote unquote normal. Do we need to be doing all this flying? So I understand the the value now much better after after chatting with you. Um, so do you, have you been able to help a lot of people with uh, operating water plants in, on First Nations? I, I, you know, I understand from the reading that I've done that, uh, especially in Canada, it's quite a problem. Yes, it's, uh, I've, right now I've got two uh, First Nations bands that are using it, but we need to get a lot more on to the program. And uh, uh, one of the biggest things is... Uh, Having been able to be on your podcast now, it's uh, getting the message out there that uh, we have two problems in Canada. We have water quality and we have innovation and technology. And both of them need to have the same platform because they both uh, aid and assist each other. And I believe that uh, in Indigenous communities, that innovation and technology hasn't been brought to the table. I think uh, they need to start with all cultures, start sharing that innovation and technology can help us all. That is a really important uh, takeaway message, uh, Trevor. Thank you very much. Trevor Andrew is the developer of a digital water management tool called Selquay Book. Selquay, by the way, is the Shushwap word for water. Thank you very much, Trevor. It's great to have you on. Thank you very much for having me, Jay. I truly appreciate it and keep doing what you're doing, bro. been listening to Let's Talk About Water, a podcast about the future of water and why you should care. It's a presentation of the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. If you want to hear more, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You'll find us on Facebook at Let's Talk About Water podcast, or on Twitter 
at LTAW Podcast. Thanks so much to this week's guests, Trevor Andrew, Emma Robbins, and Marcus Brinkman. And thank you to all of those who helped put the show together, including Mark Ferguson, Laura McFarlane, Amy Hergut, Jesse Widow, Linda Lilienfeld, and our producer, Sean Perpick. Thanks also to the Walrus Lab. I'm Jay Familietti. Be sure to come back next week for a fresh new episode. And remember, wear a mask, keep your distance, wash your hands, and please stay safe. <laughs>